This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Malaysian government launched the National Energy Transition Roadmap, or the NETR, this year, outlining Malaysia's plans towards achieving a sustainable and inclusive energy system that reduces our dependence on fossil fuels and moves us towards a low-carbon economy. However, some organisations like Sahabat Alam Malaysia have voiced some concerns over some of the proposals in the roadmap, including hydrogen and carbon capture, utilisation and storage, or CCUS technologies, which they believe require more thorough assessments and debate before being accepted as appropriate solutions. So today on the show, I'm joined by Grant Hauber. He's the Strategic Energy Finance Advisor for Asia from the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, or AIFA for short. Uh, he is an expert on this and he's going to explain a little bit more about carbon capture and storage, CCS technology, what it means, some of the not so great things about it. Uh, he's done a lot of research there. He's here to help break it all down. Welcome, Grant. How are you today? Very good. Thank you, Juliet, for having me here. It's pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me, Grant. So I think, you know, just for a quick introduction for our listeners, maybe we can start off uh, with you telling us a little bit about the uh, Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, AIFA. You know, talk to me about the work that you do uh, through the organization. Yes. Uh, AIFA is an, an NGO based in the United States, but we have global coverage. Uh, we have analysts worldwide <laughs> that look at energy sector, economics and financial issues typically from a technical perspective, and then we translate energy technologies into operational efficacy issues, uh, finance, how much those cost, the financing are involved with it, economic impact. And then from all that, we can draw policy conclusions about how that can affect the energy transition mm-hmm. uh, towards a more sustainable uh, world. Now, we don't necessarily come in with preconceived notions of what those technologies can or can't do. We use fundamental research to figure out the physics and the engineering and then the cost-benefit analysis that goes with that. Um, NIF has been doing that for about 15 years. So, uh, And we take that information and we provide it free to anyone who is willing to look at it, whether that's civil society organizations, policymakers, industry, or bankers. Mm-hmm. And you yourself, you've been working for uh, in the Asian region for about, what, 25 years now, you Yes, I, I've been here for about 25 years uh, <laughs> working on all sides of the energy industry. I used to be a project developer of both fossil and clean energy, so I know <laughs> both sides of the, of the matter, okay. financing those, as well as I spent a, a little over six years uh, as staff at the Asian Development Bank in Manila, and I've worked in South and Southeast Asia departments for the bank on public-private partnership investments in infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So looking at more from the government side. Mm. So I, I, I try to take all that experience along with Aifa's view of the world, and put that together to talk about what we're discussing today. Okay, all right. So you've got you've kind of been on all sides in that sense, right? Yeah. So, okay, so we've got uh, we've got you to help us kind of understand this. I think for a lot of us, I just did like a quick poll in the office, you know, asking them about um, carbon capture storage and carbon <laughs> capture utilization and storage, and not many people could uh, explain it. Uh, I can't explain it very well myself. I'm going to get you to help us. You know, maybe you can share what the fundamental principle behind these two technologies mm. actually are. Well, I want to assure everyone listening that most people in the world don't understand CCS <laughs> or CCUS, and I'm going to make the distinction between those two, and I'll explain why. But, and it's it's because it is it's it's technically complex, 
but it also is politically and uh, politically charged, and there's a lot of pros and cons behind this. So carbon capture utilization and storage and carbon capture and storage are slightly different. So there, what that is, there's some process that either contains CO2 that might be released into the environment or like, let's say, a, a power plant or something that burns a fossil fuel, it releases CO2 as a result of that burning process. Mm -hmm. And CCS, the carbon capture part, it tries to get that carbon before it goes into the atmosphere and somehow capture it, compress it, contain it, and then do something with it. Now, that's where we get differences. We have the U, utilization, which is you try to make use of that captured carbon for some productive purpose. Or you have the S part, the storage, which tries to put it back into the ground and keep it there permanently so that it doesn't enter the atmosphere. Mm. Now, here's the big challenge with the U. What is the U? What is carbon captured CO2 used for? Well, currently in the world, the vast majority of applications of captured carbon are for injecting it back into the ground to produce more oil and gas. Okay. So they force it back underneath the oil and gas deposits and it pushes them, the, the, the hydrocarbons, up to the wellhead in, and gets more out of wells than without that process happening. Okay. So that's where the controversy comes in. You say you're removing the carbon from the atmosphere, but you're actually using it to create things that put more carbon in the atmosphere. So that's where the debate comes. Okay. Okay. So, but, you know, and I guess, you know, the fundamental thing here is because it's being advocated as a, a solution, isn't it, to our, uh, to our fossil fuel industry, to, uh, to, you know, how they can move towards being low carbon and how they can uh, transition to a uh, low, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, how can they, they can transition from, you know, all this um, CO2 emissions, right? So you're saying that we don't quite have that technology or that technology isn't as um, how they, they tout it to be, I guess? It, it, it's... There are many who would say that that approach is facilitating additional production of climate impactful CO2 and greenhouse gases, primarily as well methane, methane, mm -hmm. which is 80 times more climate potent than CO2 in the first 20 years of its emission, which is our biggest problem. Yeah. The, both the, the com combination of CO2 and methane is a big problem, obviously production of natural gas emits a lot of methane. Okay. Uh, there are a lot of leakages in that production chain from wellhead to delivery. Uh, and so you, we're not just, I think this is the other issue here is that a lot of the fossil fuel industry is trying to get people to focus on, oh yeah, we're capturing the carbon from just this one part of the process and therefore we're heroes. <laughs> yes. But meanwhile, Every step of the value chain has, you know, there's leakage at the well, there's leakage at a pump, a pipe joint, uh, a processing plant. And those, the combination of all those leakages leads to highly emissive, a highly emissive industry. Okay. And would, they, would you say there are a lot of cost-related challenges associated with, you know, uh, both CCS and CCUS technologies? Well, yeah, th certainly they are very expensive. Um, Maybe we ought to look at the history here. Now, we've been doing carbon capture utilization storage for oil and gas production for about 50 years. Mm -hmm. 
globally. Mm -hmm. Most of those projects are in North America. And and there are some that were used for trying to capture effluent from power generation plants. But the interesting thing is that none of them have operated up to their claimed performance standard. Typically, the industry will say, we're going to capture 90 to 95 percent of the carbon emitted from the process or enclosed in this process. And based on IEFA's own uh, research on public records of operation from these plants, the top one may be hit over 80%, but most of them are capturing only 60%, 50%, and inconsistently at that. Okay. So the question becomes, and, and these are very expensive add-ons to any process. So I would imagine that you're, you're talking um, it, for a power generation plant, you're adding 25 to 50 percent of the original capital cost mm. to put that plant on there to somehow capture half the carbon, you know, mm. you know or on an oil and gas development. You know, it could be hundreds of millions of dollars, billion dollars uh, investment on top of the original development cost. Okay. So it's it's a big decision. So then you have to ask yourself, is it effective? Does it perform? Uh, can we absorb that cost? Is it, is it remunerative? Uh, and is it delivering the decarbonization we want in the shortest period of time? And actually, the International Energy Agency recently came out with a net zero roadmap report. Mm -hmm. And in that, they said, what are the carbon decarbonization pathways to 2030 and 2050? And what technologies could be used to achieve the most decarbonization in those timeframes? They published and they said there are four main technologies that will do that. Renewable energy, energy efficiency, electrification of current processes that use fossil fuels, and plugging methane leaks. Mm. Carbon capture and storage did not feature on that list till the very end, and that was only about 2.4% of the problem. Those four things I just mentioned, RE, EE, electrification, uh, methane capture, was 85% of the solution. Okay. Those are off-the-shelf technologies and policy levers that can be done today. Carbon capture and storage, the reason why it's been relegated to that 2.4% is because it's expensive, takes a long time to implement and fine-tune the operations to get partial benefit mm. in decarbonization. And that's the issue. Do we have time to wait for that? And what is the benefit of that decarbonization of that process versus all these other things we could do today? Okay. So, and it's funny because, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, and as we head up to COP28, uh, which is coming up very soon, this is again, you know, uh, carbon capture uh, at CCS and CCUS are being, you know, kind of heralded, right, mm. as like a solution to uh, to decarbonize, isn't it? So there, but there, you're, basically what you're saying, are there, are, there are many issues that we need looking well, looking into. Dr. Al Jaber has actually come out and said, you know, he's the president of COP28 process for, for this year. He said, Come with your CCS targets <laughs> and giving that equal status to renewable energy targets or other decarbonization things. And that doesn't quite equate with what we just talked about from the International Energy Agency. 
why would you give something that's a marginal technology equal billing as something that could solve, you know, over three quarters of the problem? Mm. That's where it becomes confusing. And that's where the controversy comes amongst negotiation, uh, ne uh, delegations going there to negotiate. Okay. So. Okay. Let's just go for a quick break, uh, Grant. When we come back, I want to ask um, about some of the, the research, you know, that AIFA has done into this. Uh, you know, you've looked at some projects, long-term projects, and, you know, you've come up with some conclusions from there. I'm speaking today to Grant Hauber. He is the Strategic Energy Finance Advisor for Asia for the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, or AIFA. We're talking about carbon capture and storage and also CCUS, which is carbon capture utilization and storage. There is a difference between the two of those technologies. Uh, we're just kind of exploring you know what is what's good about it but also what's not so good about it and we don't hear enough about that we'll continue that discussion after this quick break keep it here on earth matters on the bigger picture bfm 89.9 Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Julia Jacobs. In the studio with me today, Grant Hauber. He is the Strategic Energy Finance Advisor for Asia for the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, or AIFA. We're talking about, well, uh, two different technologies today, carbon capture, utilisation and storage, and also carbon capture and storage technologies. Grant is here to explain what it all means, whether it's as great as, you know, it's being touted to be, and whether it is the solution for all our problems. It doesn't sound like it is. Uh, there are some things that looking at uh, looking into isn't it grant so okay i just want to talk a little bit about some of the research that uh, you've done as well grant you know um and you you released a report uh just this year wasn't it mm. um uh, yes. you looked at two long-running norwegian carbon capture and storage projects uh i don't know if i'm pronouncing this correctly sleipner and uh Schnovit. i don't know if i'm saying it right completely wrong no no that that's that's very good and actually what's I was saying Snowvit too. It's actually Snow White. Snow White. Okay. Believe it or not. So. Uh, <laughs> okay. So those two. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to talk to you. Uh, I wanted you to talk to us about that report, right? It was released earlier this year. It questions. It raises a cautionary tale about the technical and financial viability of the of this concept in the long run, right? Can you please elaborate? Well, so we got to. What's interesting about the Norwegian case is that if you. It's the reason we even looked at it was because governments and industry around the world were saying, look at these projects. They are wonderful. They've been operating for a long time. They are the golden example of why this all works. So that what, what are they? So basically, the Norwegian National Oil Company, which at the time was called Statoil, it's now Equinor, uh, was charged with developing these fields for the benefit of the national economy. But at the same time, the Norwegian government had done a world first, which is pass a substantial carbon tax. They wanted – this is back in 1991. They wanted to be uh, a, on a low-carbon pathway then. Okay. So they passed a – any industry in Norway that emitted CO2 was going to be charged $50 a ton. That's a – even today, that's a substantial amount of money. But that's enough to change investment decisions. So they decided with the Sleipner project that they were they they have a CO2 content of gas coming out of the ground of about seven to nine percent okay. of the total volume. Okay. So they're going to strip that out, which they needed to do anyway you, to market the gas. It has to be well below one percent, even lower uh, CO2 content. But then take, normally you would just vent that into the atmosphere. They said, okay, we're going to use this technology to capture it, condense it, and put it back in the ground. 
And so they mobilized their national universities and their best geophysicists and engineers to do this. So the Sleipner project captures between 900,000 tons and a million tons a year of gas and puts it um, and is captured on an offshore platform, processed there and re-injected back into the ground. Okay. So to do that, they had to find a suitable you know, subsurface geology layer to inject that CO2 into. And you, you find that by using um, what it sounds going to, it's going to sound funny. You bounce sound waves off the ground. Okay. They, they have a ship floating on the top of the water that emits seismic uh, waves. It hits the different strata of the seafloor, bounces back up to receivers, and then they can determine whether or not there's voids or solid, uh, you know, the, the composition of the rock. And if there's and that's how they find oil and gas. Yeah. But they have adapted this to find suitable areas for putting CO2. And what's interesting about this is that we, all, we also think about, oh, I'm going to store CO2 underground. You think about the gas going into a cavern or something like that, right? No, but, but that's not it. It actually, what you're trying to do is find rock that has a porosity that can bind CO2 to it and keep it down there forever. Mm. It's a chemical reaction. But how do they do that? They got to take the CO2 they capture and they compress it, high compression at a specific temperature to make it into a liquid, right at some state between liquid and gas called supercritical state. And they have to pump it underground at that temperature and pressure. And it needs to be at least 800 meters below the seabed to stay in that form such that it has the highest chance of bonding with rock. Okay. So a lot of really precise, you know, uh, conditions, a whole checklist of conditions need to be maintained in order for that to happen. So they need to find all this stuff through using essentially the techniques used for oil and gas exploration applied to permanent storage. But that's the trick. It has to be permanent. And you're putting something back into the ground rather than taking it out. And even the geophysicist who worked on that project said, this is far more difficult to put something in than taking it out. Okay. So th they took, so there's that project. And then there's another one that was started in 2008. That's the Snow White project, which has 700,000 tons of CO2 per year stored. And that's 160 kilometers offshore. There's no platform. It's all on the bottom of the sea done with remote access. Okay. And, but that one, they, they take the gas there, they pump it on shore, they strip the CO2 on shore, and then pump it back out to the well site and to put it back down. Now, that project is attached to a nearly $7 billion LNG export terminal. So you... If we go back to what we were talking about with this tax, carbon tax regime, they needed this whole thing to work right. to make that LNG export terminal financially viable and secure. And with LNG, the remaining CO2 that is in the gas that's for that has to be way lower than the piped gas. It has to be the point something percent CO2 content. So they really needed this to work well. Okay. So that. And it turns out, well, yes, they got the carbon removal part 
uh, taken care of. It's the storage part that has issues. Now there, they had done, uh, they'd taken the learning from Sleipner and they said, oh yeah, okay, we're gonna do, uh, we're gonna do a great job here and figure out what's going on with the subsurface. And, and they found a strata under the ground that had what they felt was the perfect geochemistry and size, and they estimated that this layer that was well below the um, production strata of oil and gas above it uh, could hold 18 years worth of CO2 on a 30-year uh, project, and that would give them plenty of time to find another place to store the remaining 12 years. Okay. What happened there was they started injecting the CO2, and it, the pressure went up, and things started going wrong, and it went from 18 years of storage to 18 months. <laughs> which meant that all the study that they did ahead of time essentially was wrong. And then they had to do an emergency intervention to figure out where are we going to store this CO2? Is there something blocking it? So they actually had to rent a ship, attach, it's called a well intervention vessel. They had to get a crew and they had a list of solutions, none of which they knew would work, but they had to go through it as a checklist. And they attached to it and they went down. Is, is there something blocking the well? No. Can we chemically dissolve something, you know, maybe something's, uh, we can add a chemical to dissolve it to allow the CO2 to go in. That didn't work. And they were like, well, we're going to have to abandon the well. Oh, so they plugged it. They went up to a, a, a shallower strata and said, there's one that kind of looks like that one that's deeper, but it's not great. It's only 50 meters away from the oil and gas production level. But they said, we got to do something. Mm -hmm. So they opened that up and it had okay absorb absorptivity. So they said, okay, we'll put the CO2 in there for now so they could restart production. And then they had to go out immediately and start prospecting for a new storage site, which they did, and they found it. But they had to spend a quarter billion dollars to develop that on, on a much more advanced timeline that they had ever expected. They did that, and now it's injecting CO2 there and storing it. But the story here is that Every step of the way has been estimates, challenges, and they have to be on top of this at all times. It's like taking care of a baby. Mm -hmm. You never, especially as a first-time parent, you don't know what's going to happen with the baby. What's it going to do? You have to be ready for all contingencies, including going to the hospital if you needed to. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's kind of the way these storage sites work. And... Actually, if we go back to Sleipner, what they did there, they had uh, done all these same studies with the seismic and you know test bores and things, and they said, okay, we have CO2 that's going to be injected at a thousand meters below the surface, and there's we see there's like eight layers of storage area, and we predict that slowly over many years the CO2 will go up through those layers until they fill that, and it'll be wonderful. So. They start injecting CO2. The first time they go and do the, the, the next seismic study, which was like two and a half, three years later, they found the CO2 was already moved up to the top level. Uh, and actually, then the next, the next monitoring period, again, two and a half years later, mm -hmm. they found it moved into a ninth layer, shallower, that they had not even seen in their studies. And it's right at that 800-meter level where the CO2 could convert from liquid to gas. Uh. If it had done that, it, it makes the molecules smaller. It could, you know, and if there's any faults or cracks or things, the gas will find that. So 
I guess all this long story is that there's so much uncertainty. There's, and this is, we're trying to address CO2 storage that is permanent, that is without a doubt trying to remove CO2 f- from entering the atmosphere. Yeah. And these are smaller fields than anything that's being pro- proposed today because the industry said, oh, these work. Industry says this works, we want to duplicate it, and by the way, scale it up by multiples. But is the world, are these entities going to take the same level of care that the Norwegians applied to these smaller sites on something that's four to ten times the size? We're talking you know, hundreds of square kilometers of subsurface area, not, not like yeah. square meters. Yeah, you know? yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> So the question is then, right, I mean, so you did this research, right, but was there any, are there any sort of sorts of checks and balances uh, in place to to monitor these projects? You know, are all of these reports like publicly available? Uh, you know, who does assessments, right? See, this is the thing. One of the things that was just mind boggling to me was that I, I reviewed probably over 250 reports. Okay. None of them were written in layperson's language. They were all academic papers and industry journals, most of those behind paywalls. And I had to, I had to, I happened to have an engineering background. So I, I used that to interpret what was being said in these scientific papers. Being an engineer, I identify with it. You have a problem, you figure out how to solve it, regardless of cost or time because that's what you were asked to do. And clearly, the researchers and academics and the professionals that worked on this are of the highest caliber. I take nothing away from them. Mm. They did the job they were asked to do. But is it viable? Mm. Is it long-term viable? Is it economic? Is it financially remunerative? Well, probably not. But all of these issues are such that it brings into doubt the technology as a solution to our climate problem. Yeah, it's a solution to an engineering problem, but to an overall climate problem, it's hard to say. So unfortunately, none of this information really has been put in a form that policymakers, let alone the general public, can understand. Yet you hear policymakers and the public saying, yes, this is a solution. Do we understand what we're talking about? I'm not, I'm not so sure. So that, that, that's the challenge here is that you have a highly technical solution being touted as a, an off-the-shelf, mm. almost like a catalog selection, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. But it's not. Uh, by the way, that's actually an interesting that, – that point it should be clear to everyone. Every single application of CCS globally so far has been a bespoke, custom-designed one-off solution for that particular application. There is no learning curve. Well, you know, like we, we, the, the wonderful thing about, say, solar or wind is that we've been able to track it from its original application for space applications down to uh, installing it in our own homes today yeah. because there's been this massive and, and visible decline in cost and increase in scale and increase in performance. And that's happened in solar, wind, and now it's happening with battery storage on even a faster rate than the other two. Mm-hmm. 
despite 50 years of CCS being on the market, it hasn't experienced that at all. If anything, the costs have gone up because of materials and the need for more technical solutions, new solvents and chemicals to remove the CO2, new uh, modeling techniques to figure out how to get the CO2 under the ground and monitoring. So it's not quite equivalent. And, and it sounds extremely energy intensive. <laughs> I mean, I mean, those, of course, are implications, right, for energy efficiency mm. and, and overall uh, emissions reductions, right, as you were saying? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing is that when we think – actually, that's – I'm glad you brought that up, Julia, because the – when we think about solutions in general, anything that requires a chemical reaction, a heating – a pumping, a compressing, that's an energy input, that's a cost mm -hmm. that can't be recovered. CCS is all about that stuff. You have to extract, condense, react, <laughs> pump, energy input, energy input, energy input, or energy loss. And that implies a cost. The nice thing about why, why everyone's excited about renewables is that you have a you, yes, you have an energy input cost to make a solar panel, but it's the photons from the sun that bounce off a surface, a non-mechanical surface, and creates energy at very low losses. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's difficult to compare those things. We just need to go for one more quick break, Grant. When we come back, I do want to talk about, you know, well, Malaysia is also, you know, heading in this direction, mm. isn't it? We've got some uh, huge projects, uh, namely the Kasawari Gas Field of Sarawak, which is uh, spearheaded by Petronas. I want to ask your thoughts on that uh, after this quick break. I'm speaking today to Grant Halber. He's the Strategic Energy Finance Advisor for Asia at the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, or IEFA. We're talking about, uh, well, carbon capture and storage and also carbon capture, utilisation and storage technologies. Uh, we'll have more after one more quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. In the studio with me today, Grant Halber. He's the Strategic Energy Finance Advisor for Asia at the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, or AIFA. We're talking about, well, uh, well, we, we want to talk about Malaysia's, uh, you know, plans to transition to renewables. We, our National Energy Transition Roadmap was just released this year. Uh, we've got lots of plans there, but there are some concerns about some of the proposals in the roadmap, including hydrogen, uh, carbon capture, utilisation and storage and also carbon capture and storage. So Grant is here to, well, you've done a lot of research, obviously, through uh, through the work that you do uh, to see, you know, not everything is as rosy as the pictures being painted, right? And I do want to go to another bit of research done by AIFA, right? So this was a report that was released last September. It reviewed 13 operational large-scale CCS projects, uh, and it was authored by, I think, two of your colleagues, right? Mm. Bruce Robertson and Milad Mosavin. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. So in essence, you know, that study asked the question, is CCS and CCUS a greenwash to extend the life of fossil fuel assets or is it the panacea to avert catastrophic climate change consequences? Can you walk us through some of the key findings of that study? Yeah, so that that study really tried to look at the sort of the global portfolio of CCS projects, of which there's only 39, by the way, okay. of which and of the 39, 37 are still running. Mm. Uh, and they took a deep dive on, on, on a section of those. 
And, and really what they kept finding out was is a history of underperformance. So there's overpromising, underdelivering by margins that are 20 percent, 30 percent, 50 percent. And one and they so my colleagues were based in Australia, and one of the ones they focused on was this very large scale gas production and LNG export project called the Gorgon Project. The promise there was to capture only 50% of the CO2 emissions that came from producing gas from the offshore fields there mm-hmm. using a state-of-the-art facility that of that 50%, they said we were going to capture 90 95% of that 50% and put it back underground. And that was a condition of the license that was granted by the federal government in Australia. Okay. Now, what happened? So this is that project, by the way, a multi, multi-billion dollar project sponsored by Chevron, Shell, ExxonMobil, and a small consortium of Japanese oil and gas companies. So basically, the people with the most technical knowledge and the most financial resources in the world. The project has never operated up to its specification. In fact, it's probably it, not not probably, what my colleagues found out that it is operating at around a third of what it was stated to perform. And in the meantime, CO2 is being vented into the atmosphere, all those targets. And even, and probably, probably the other thing that's more disturbing is that it doesn't work even, even when it's operating, it's, it, it, it's breaking down. Okay. So they can't get the CO2 into the ground. This gets us, and, and I, I think one of the things that's kind of shocking is that the Australian authorities have done nothing to impose a penalty or threaten to even suspend the operating license because perhaps they view it as a project in the national interest because it's one of the largest exporters of LNG to Asia Pacific. Now, that could be a cautionary tale because now we can move to Malaysia. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, we've got the uh, Kawasari gas field of Sarawak, right? And that's a 4.5 billion ringgit mega carbon capture storage project uh, in Sarawak. Of course, it's being spearheaded by Petronas. You know, they say that is the new chapter for regional upstream oil and gas, uh, the mm. industry, right? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, so it, it's clear that obviously a national oil company wants to tap national gas assets for the national benefit. But again, it has to come down to what, what is it, at what cost, and what benefit. The Kasuari field has been known about for a long time, but not developed. Okay. Why is that? In fact, Shell was a partner, in, but they exited that arrangement because the gas under Kasuari is... 40% CO2 content. It's called extremely sour gas. Sour meaning high CO2. It's one of the highest CO2 contents under development currently globally. So that means whatever they, whatever Patronus does to extract that gas, they have to remove 39.5% of the CO2 to make it marketable mm-hmm. to sell it to the world. And that's why they're thinking about, if you put that into the context of the national 
plans for decarbonization and the commitments the government of Malaysia made under the Paris Agreement to reduce the carbon intensity of the economy by 45 percent by 2040, then you would say, oh, we have to do something about this, and which is why they proposed doing a CCS project. So this is stripping the carbon and storing it right out back in the ocean there, mm -hmm. under, under the ocean. So sounds good, right? Well, that the challenge here is that the carbon produced is about 3.4 million tons per year, very similar to the 3.8 I mentioned at Gorgon. Right. So this is a top of world scale project. Also, it would be the largest ever done on an offshore platform. They're not, it's 300 kilometers off the coast of Sarawak. Um, it's, you're not going to pump it onshore to strip CO2 and then pump CO2 back because, by the way, you need a highly specialized metal pipeline for it to handle CO2, uh, super expensive. So they said, okay, we'll do an offshore solution. Mm. But to fit it on a platform for something that scale, they've chosen a technology that would be a first-of-a-kind application of that technology on an offshore platform, which is um, there's three types of primary types of stripping CO2, which is a solvent, a sorbent, or a membrane. Okay. And they're using the membrane technology. Membranes, basically, you take raw, dirty gas coming out of the ground, you try to filter out, there's contaminants in it, and the last step of the process is the CO2, which they're essentially going to pull through a filter membrane to capture the molecules of CO2. Okay. Um, there's a lot that can go wrong with that. Uh, membrane technology is great for many applications, but the challenge is, does it get, you know, it can get clogged uh, okay. because it, it's super, super fine. Obviously, it has to be the size of a molecule of CO2 so to filter out. And then having that go wrong 300 kilometers offshore. So there are many risks on that that are associated with that. Uh, and the biggest risk is, as you said, is a four and a half billion ringgit investment. And the question would be, would if something went wrong with production of or with the extraction of CO2, would Petronas stop production to fix it in the context of a public entity, publicly owned entity that contributes around 25 to 30 percent of the national budget, fiscal budget every year? It's a question. But then you have to put that into the context, you know, what's the risk here? The risk is you start venting that CO2 into the atmosphere. And how is that going to impact the government of Malaysia's performance on its international treaty agreement? Uh, I mean, that would be probably the largest single point source of emission in the country if the CCS plant shut down and vented the CO2. Okay. <laughs> are there any, uh, would you know, if there are any sort of regulatory frameworks, you know, for projects of, of this scale? You know, that's the interesting thing. So there's only about, that I know of, there's probably six or seven regulatory frameworks in the world okay. that cover CCS. And I believe it's Norway, the EU, US, Canada, Australia, and I believe recently uh, Indonesia actually just minted one, I, and I haven't had a chance to read that one yet. Okay. But 
typically it, it talks about it, it, those regulations talk about how to get the CO2 into the ground. There is, there are provisions, there is sort of a common uh, set of provisions about once you've shut the well, you have uh, an obligation to make sure it stays in the ground. So of all those uh, regulations, I've seen uh, what they have a sort of a performance bond that the operators of the injection wells and the storage sites have to post um, that covers monitoring, post-closure, and some sort of remedial action should there a leak develop. And that would mobilize the equipment, the personnel, and the finances needed to theoretically close the leak. Okay. If you could find it, right? That, that, that's a, another issue. But the regulatory regimes vary in terms of how long that bond has to be in place. In the US, it's the longest at 50 years. Mm -hmm. In Australia, it's the shortest at 15 years. But the way all of those regulations are read, uh, written, the regulator has the option to waive the requirement at any time if they're satisfied the CO2 is staying in the ground. This is in the context of a chemical, geochemical process that may take hundreds of years, if not longer, to create the bonding to keep the CO2 stable and underground. And, there's, and the regulatory regimes are 15 to 50 years. What happens after those periods? The liability and responsibility reverts to the state, or i.e. the people um, of each of those countries. Okay. And the question that comes up then is, are any of those governments, or if it was here, if, if this government, is, does the government regulator have the technical capability, the fiscal depth, and the access to human resources and physical equipment needed to go out and remediate something should a problem occur under their liability watch. Yeah, I, I find that question difficult to answer with any sort of certainty. Yes. So, so there is so there are so many issues, and it's 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 yeah, like you said, you know, even in COP, they're asking you to come with your your carbon capture solutions, but there seems to be so many issues that haven't been looked at and. Yeah, so many things. And, and it sounds almost like, you know, what your colleagues were saying, you know, is it actually just a greenwash for... Well, um, we also have to put this into context. Remember, oil and gas, oil and gas is highly carbon emissive. Mm -hmm. and, and this gets to the, like the scale of the... Is CCS or CCUS appropriate for the scale of the problem? Okay, yeah. Everything that we're talking about with oil and gas CCS or CCUS is about the production part, mm. getting the oil and gas out of the ground and to a marketable state. In the total scheme of emissions, CO2 emissions from oil and gas, that accounts for about 10% of the CO2 content. The other sort of 85, 90% of emissions come from burning it. <laughs> and CCS does nothing to address that, which is why this is such a problem. Unfortunately, the, the international climate negotiation regimes, in order to get to an agreement, way back, if we go back to the Kyoto Protocol era, unfortunately decoupled seller and buyer responsibility for emissions. So what the regime is today and why you're hearing all the petrostates say, oh, CCS should be part of the solution to our obligations is that they are only responsible for the upstream part of the carbon. Right. 
Scope one and two is called. Scope one is the embedded carbon in their, their product out of the ground, and scope two is from the emissions needed to process it into something like electricity mm-hmm. or, or whatever they use. But the buyer, so the international market, is responsible for all the scope three. So here you are, you're basically, you, you think about it as a, the seller has no liability for the product they're selling. It's all on the buyer. And that's the international regime that we're in now, which is why we get, I'm going to get back to the International Energy Agency net zero roadmap solution, where it's saying the global basket of solutions are dominated by renewables, efficiency, electrification, and, and forcing the oil and gas industry to plug their methane, methane leaks. Simple as that. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's interesting is that those solutions are actually catalog solutions. I can go into a catalog and select a wind turbine from a manufacturer's website to solve my problem. I can go out to the market and bid for solar panels from myriad manufacturers and suppliers to get the best price. And I can install that and be decarbonizing my energy within a year. The CCS projects we're talking about are multi-year design, multi-year fabrication, and installation and testing processes that, you know, won't get running for towards until the end of the decade. I I can imagine them saying, well, would you rather we do nothing, right, rather than this, right? That would definitely be the argument. Well, you know, and I, I obviously that's the argument. In fact, we would I would love to see them do invest all that invest the money in decarbonizing your upstream, use renewables in the Saudi Arabia desert to create electricity to power the pumps that run your process, because incrementally that will reduce emissions. Mm. But don't use that as an excuse to delay the rest of the world's transition to lower carbon intensity sources. I, I follow a really... You know, and I think uh, not just myself, but Aifa follows a very simple principle. If we're looking at decarbonization and in the context of the global emergency that clearly leaders have repeatedly said we're in, we've opened the gates to hell. You know, Anthony Gutierrez said this. Um, we need to mobilize the maximum solutions that are the lowest cost, the highest decarbonization benefit for a certain decarbonization in the least time. And if you use that test against the options that are out there, CCS fails. All right. I'm afraid we've run out of time, Grant. Uh, there's going to be so much. There's so much we need to talk about. So we will definitely uh, catch up. But you know, just just before I let you go, you know, I mean, for for anyone listening, you know, without an engineering background, you know, just just the general public, what would you most like them to know or to do, perhaps, you know, when it comes to uh, talking about these sorts of technologies or thinking about these sorts of technologies? You know, I, I think I think we're attracted like moths to a flame to the the shiniest, you know, jewel. <laughs> yes that shiny technical solution that will magically solve all our problems. But just like day-to-day life, it's really sort of the ordinary things, the less, you know, sexy or whatever you want to call it, uh, parameters that actually work the best. And 
energy efficiency in particular is like the lowest hanging fruit that all of us have available to us. We can do that in our own homes. Mm. We can do that in the choices we make on getting to work. Um, but in particular, on a national level, energy efficiency is key. I come from the United States. And I, I'm just going to give this as an example because the United States has not had electricity demand growth since 2009. Okay. We, since 2009, we've added 10% to our population, and we had a five-year period of some of the highest growth rates post-World War II. Okay. With an economy that size, sort of in the 3% GDP growth rate. But our electricity consumption has been flat across all demand categories, industrial, commercial, residential. Why? Energy efficiency. And has the U.S. economy gone down? No. no. Perfect example. That's what energy efficiency can deliver. More dollars of economic benefit to the people of each country for less energy input. So I think we, have, we owe it to ourselves to maximize that. Um, and, it, and that can benefit you, and you, you today in your own home. So, yeah, that, it's fascinating that simple things, you know, maybe better windows, yeah. LED light bulbs, um, you know, a sunshade over your window instead of having the sun beating in in the middle of the day. Less glass. <laughs> right, it just, yeah. it just less cooling. Yeah. All those things work and very low cost and easily accessible to anyone. Well, Grant, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I was speaking to Grant Halber, a Strategic Energy Finance Advisor for Asia at the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, or AIFA. If you'd like to find out more about Grant's work and uh, the organization's work, you can head to their website. So that's ieefa.org. But if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.